Well, good morning, everybody, right here at the broadcast location, all of our church family in our different locations. Uh, if you're a guest, we are one church in different rooms, and joining us right now is Iglesia and the Duncan unit, the Dieball unit. We have our Groves campus there in the Beaumont sprawl. We have uh, Nacogdoches campus. We have everyone online in 44 different states and five different countries. We're so glad to have you as we continue on now in week six of this series we've entitled When in Rome. As we look at the letter that Paul writes, one of the 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament that Paul authored himself, we look at this, this constitution of Christianity. And if you're just joining us, whether in person or online, and you're like, oh man, part six, I, I want to get caught up. You can check it out on TimberCreekChurch.com. You can download the podcast on Android or iOS, uh, and you can catch up with us uh, as we continue right through almost verse by verse, section by section, inch by inch, in, into this letter that Paul writes to the Christians in a Roman culture that's very much like today's culture. To recap where we've been, we have basically uh, been in one section of this whole thing. The introduction and the conclusion, uh, we'll get to those eventually as we spend time in this letter. But we have been focusing on this very first part. Before we can ever get to the service or the sovereignty of God, what sanctification even is, that's a big word for like living every day for Jesus uh, before we can even get to the good news of salvation, we got to talk about the bad news of sin. Sin is choosing my way over God's way in any way. It's not the act I commit, it's the authority I reject. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about the, the rebellious person, how we suppress and reject and replace the truth of God for stuff that makes us comfortable, the respectable person that can have everything in the, all their ducks in a row, but then they judge others. We talked about the religious person who, instead of God's way to get to Jesus, we choose our way to get to God, and that's what religion is all about. Today, we're going to talk about the righteous person, and so we've gone from chapter 1 to chapter two, we now turn a page and we go to Romans chapter three, and we're just going to set up camp right in these first few verses. I'm not going to read every single verse to you today, but let me just say what's really crazy is how the beginning of this chapter starts out. It starts out like having small kids on a long road trip. You ever had kids that uh, like three minutes into the deal, they're saying, how long is it going to be? Can I do this? Why won't we do this? Can we stop for this? I got to go potty. Like, like there's all kinds of statements and tons of questions on a long road trip with your kiddos. I'm telling you, don't despise those days, though, because they'll be gone before you know it. Well, Paul starts out and he poses 10 questions in nine verses. And he's posing these questions uh, not in a true way like, like asking us. He is saying, you might be thinking this, you might be thinking that. They're very rhetorical. He's trying to set his whole case as a prosecuting attorney, trying to show us the, 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 the deadliness of sin and where we can't make ourselves right. It is only God that can make us right. And he's about ready to turn the corner from the whole thing of sin to what salvation really looks like. Here are some of those 10 questions. He, he asks questions like, 
You might be asking, what's the advantage of being a Jew if, if like nobody is guaranteed, like it's not your pedigree, it's not your ethnicity that gets you into heaven. What's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in circumcision? Um, is it unfair for God to punish us if we're the chosen people and the Jewish people? Is it unfair? He's basically saying, let me answer those things inch by inch. Let me tell you, of course there's value to being Jewish. It's beautiful. You ought to appreciate it, but you can't get your salvation in it. Circumcision, sure. Have some certain things that are customs. That's great, but it won't save you. It's just part of the traditions. He goes on to say, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? In other words, isn't it kind of okay that if I'm so bad and it just makes God seem so good because he forgives me that shouldn't I still be being bad? And the apostle Paul is saying, you are twisting my words. What that comes from is his other statements in another book where he says, should we keep on sinning just so sin can abound that much or so that can grace can abound that much more? He's saying, no, you're twisting my words. And really, it comes down to this final question in those first nine verses. Should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? And here's his response. And when you're reading this, you might say, I'm off the hook because I'm not Jewish. But you could replace it with, should we conclude that we Baptists, we Pentecostals, we good people, uh, we churchgoers, uh, we dream teamers, we longtime Christians, senior citizen saints, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? He says it like this. Uh, no, not at all. For we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. There is nothing that escapes you from the reality of the power of sin. And Paul begins to make his case one more time on why we need the good news. He says, Here's what the scriptures say. Pause. Let me say this. If you're not careful, you can read one portion of scripture and you get a limited perspective. This is the value of seeing the whole picture from Genesis to Revelation. This is the power of the Old Testament before Jesus, the New Testament in the time of Jesus. And then as Jesus ascends in the time of the church, the book of Revelation and, and future forecasting of what God is going to do in the future that hasn't happened yet. In order to really understand God, you get the full authority of scripture. And Paul, multiple times throughout Romans, comes back to the scripture to clarify it, but also give us a robust, full-bodied view of the importance of what he's talking about. He says, no, 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 as the scripture says, and now he is going to actually quote Psalm 53. He's saying, it don't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile, no one is righteous. All locations, all people, say it with me right out loud. Let's repeat it with me. No one is righteous. One more time, everybody. No one is righteous. Yeah, not even one. Even my grandma? Yeah, especially your grandma. God love her. She's not right. No one's righteous. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. He's saying, obviously, there's nobody that, that is uh, off the hook. And, 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 and obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. Because here's the purpose of the law. The purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. The whole world is guilty before God, no matter what you do, no matter how you were raised. We all have sinned and fall short. 
No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Just by keeping the law, you, you will not be made right with God because the truth is nobody can fully keep the law except one person and his name is Jesus and he was perfect. No, only way to be made right with God is not by keeping the law because the law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law was a mirror. All of these rules and regulations, it was a mirror to the people to show them, not if you keep it, you'll be good, but you can't keep it. You're not good enough. And all this has to do with this idea, no one is good enough or no one is made right. It's that idea of this big word today, righteousness. Righteousness. Now, if you were to hand out a three by five card to everybody in all of our locations, and I were to say, <clears throat> define righteousness. And you had just a three by five card to just define this word righteousness. No doubt in my mind, there would be a whole lot of different perspectives. Some might even be blank cards. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. If you have no clue what righteousness is all about, we, we've built this church with you in mind. We're so glad. Like, like, what I don't like about a lot of churches is they expect everybody to already know the language. Everybody to already be, be in on the, on the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, secret, secret stuff. This ain't no secret. It's a big deal. We want everybody to have the cookies on the bottom shelf, and by the time you leave here today, you're going to have a very incredibly clear picture of what righteousness is and what righteousness isn't, and just how important understanding righteousness is for your daily walk with Jesus. Right here, let's just pause. Let's just have a prayer together. Close your eyes. taking away any of the distractions, the stuff that we could be thinking about right now. Father, may we hear you clearly today. May we see you clearly today. That when we leave this place, we will know where we find righteousness, how we put it on, and how we stay dressed in your righteousness. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to get a little bit closer to you today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So let's start with this idea. Righteousness is obviously very important in the Bible. Why? Because it's mentioned more than 540 times in the Old and New Testament. Now, why does that number matter? Because if you think that faith is important, well, faith is actually only mentioned 328 times. So it doesn't mean that righteousness is more important than faith. It just means there is a huge emphasis on what righteousness should be and what righteousness we think it is. If you look through the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, you will read information like this. God is righteous. So if God is righteous, we need to understand what righteousness looks like. Uh, the word of God, the Bible itself, even Jesus talks about how the word is righteous. And the word became flesh. So Jesus is righteousness. We read that God loves righteousness. When he sees his people living for him dressed in the right righteousness, 
He loves it. So if God loves it, shouldn't I love it? If God is just passionate about it, shouldn't we be passionate about what righteousness looks? Look, God rewards righteousness. Throughout scripture, we see that God is a rewarder. When he sees righteousness on display, he offers it. It's a beautiful thing. Look, he leads me in Psalm 23, one of the most popular, one of the most popular uh, scriptures in all of the Bible. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So there's two things. Number one, it's a path that he wants us to go on. But number two, it's a path that we ought to be walking. So we have to walk out our righteousness. We have to not just understand it, but we have to live in it and take next steps with it. In fact, scripture says here in first John, all who practice righteousness are God's true children. So righteousness isn't just a concept to understand. It's a promise to claim and a promise to practice. It's something that we practice. So for all intents and purposes today, how do we define righteousness? For Timber Creek Church right here, how do we, how do we live out righteousness? Well, if you go to the original language, you go to the understanding, kind of the, the root of what righteousness really is, you get to the definition. There's two parts of the definition. You can write it down in your notes today. Here's what righteousness really is. Here's how you can understand it best. Righteousness means to be presentable. To be presentable. It's, 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 checking, it's checking the lipstick, ladies, in the mirror before you walk out. It's, it's, it's making, sure the, making sure you have XYZ'd. Uh, everybody, before you, before you step back out of the bathroom, examine your zipper. You know what I'm talking about. To be presentable. Or, here's another way to say it, or to pass inspection. To be presentable or to pass inspection. A recurring nightmare that I have. And maybe this is just me. Maybe this is just my therapy moment for everybody. But a recurring nightmare I have you probably do too, is going to a place and you're not passing inspection or you're not presentable. Here's how that fleshes out in me. I will show up to preach on a Sunday in my dreams and I don't know what I'm gonna preach. I am not ready. I am unpresentable. Worse is I don't know what I'm preaching and I forgot to put my pants on. Anybody ever had that dream where you show up and you don't got the right clothes on or you forgot to put, how did I leave the house? I forgot to put my jeans on. Like, like that is a recurring nightmare because it has something to do with not being presentable and not passing inspection. And this, is, this, this plays out in every part of our lives. In other words, write it down. The desire to be presentable is at the center of our struggles. The desire to be presentable in front of our peers, in front of our pastors, in front of our parents, in front of our professional people, like to be presentable is at the center of our struggles. Think about first dates. I mean, when I got Janet to say yes to a first date, it was a week later, March 27th, 1998. And that week before, I made sure, I made sure. I drove into Dallas 45 minutes, picked the place, looked at the menu, 
made sure that it was going to be something I could afford, number one. Number two, making sure I had all the timing done. From there, we were going to go to the Las Colinas Riverwalk, and we were going to hang out at the picnic table and make out. I mean, talk about life. We didn't make out on that, on that first date. <laughs> on that first date. Uh, but, but like, we, I wanted to make sure that I passed inspection and that things were presentable, so I cleaned out my car. I made sure I had stuff to talk about. I made sure I had money in my pocket. I made sure I had gas in the tank. I borrowed, I borrowed a nicer shirt from my friend James Felix that was living down the hall in college because I, I just wanted to be presentable and I wanted to pass inspection. Then when you're talking, you want to make sure that you've got stuff to talk about. And isn't it always awkward in that weird silence? You know, like this is at the center of our struggles. And it starts with dating, and then it goes into professional life and social life and social media. It's like anywhere and everywhere and everywhere in between. Where does this come from? Where does this come, this desire to be presentable and to pass inspection? Well, it comes all the way, if you rewind history, all the way down to the garden. You rewind history all the way back to the very first two humans. Being presentable and passing inspection are huge things. How does God create us? God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the birds in the air. He creates the fish in the sea. He creates the light and the moon and the stars. Uh, he, he creates morning and evening. Uh, he creates the trees and the lush vegetation. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He finally gets to man, and it's the first thing he says that isn't good. It's not good man to be alone. And so he makes a helper. And there they are, husband and wife, man and woman, opposite in so many ways. They were there and they were naked. And here is such an important part of understanding righteousness and understanding passing inspection and presentableness. It's not that they were naked and in love. It's not that they were naked and happy. It's not that they were naked and full of joy. It's not that they were naked and it's they were naked and unashamed. In other words, they were completely innocent, completely vulnerable, completely presentable. They completely passed inspection. In that moment, the reason why the author chooses to say naked and unashamed is because in that moment, they were completely righteous. They were completely presentable. They were well-pleasing in the eyes of the only one who really counted. God was not expecting anything else from them. He created them. He loved them. He gave them guardrails for how to live. And he gave them wide guardrails. 39,500 species of trees. He says, you are free to move about the country and eat fruit from any tree you want. Except one. 39,499 trees. Enjoy. But one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't, don't, don't eat that fruit. Don't eat that fruit. Let me be your source of all knowledge. And what do we do? We eat that tree. We eat that fruit. 
God never intended for you to even understand good and evil. He just meant for you to understand God and to let God define life. But they were well-pleased. They were pleasing in the eyes of the one who only counted. You know, they were loved by the only one whose love would really last forever. And do you know what they did at that moment? Do you know what Adam and Eve did with this absolute, unashamed, presentableness, passing inspection through and through complete vulnerability, complete innocence, complete righteousness. They lost it. They lost it. And in fact, that's not even the right way to say it. Don't even say it that way. They traded it. As a matter of fact, don't even say it that way. We traded it. Because Adam and Eve, represent all of us we trade it in the complete presentability because we wanted to do it our own way and ever since the garden we've been addicted to doing things our own way figuring out how to cover ourselves and as soon as they sinned as soon as they took the authority, they rejected the authority of God and said, we really want access to 39,500 trees, not just 39,499. Let me live my life. Oh God, you're so restrictive on me. God, you're all about these rules. Can I just take one moment in the garden? God's first words to, to, to man and women is to say, you are free to do whatever you want. But the first words that the enemy says about God to Adam and Eve, specifically to Eve, he says, did God really say you cannot? When really the first words that God said was you are free, but the enemy wants to focus on you must not. That is exactly culture too. Culture wants you to say you're not real. God just is all about you must not. It's a control... Christianity is a control mechanism to keep you from really having the kind of life you really want. It's just a way for us to control society to where all Christianity is about is you must not. And that is a lie from the pit. It's a lie from the mouth of the enemy itself. God's plan is you are free. The enemy's plan is you must not. And as soon as they sin. Because they took that lie. They had to cover themselves. They immediately felt like they could not pass inspection. That they were not presentable. For the first time they realized, "Uh uh-oh, I can't present myself in front of God. The reason why the author says they were naked and unashamed. Because he he is doing a preface to the real issue that's going to plague humanity in the future. Because in that moment, a shame was inflicted on us, write it down, deeper than we really could ever understand. A shame that makes us feel like we have to cover ourselves, that we have to earn or make or create Or prove rightness, righteousness, our presentability, our ability to pass inspection. Later on, 
Paul will double down on this idea in Romans 10, and we'll get there. But in Romans 10, he says it like this. And being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's where you and I are living in 2023. Ignorant of the righteousness of God and trying to establish our own righteousness. So I wanna give you three ways to approach righteousness today. And let me show you, number one, this is the Roman way to righteousness. And when I say Roman way, that is USA way. The Roman culture is the culture we're living in today where the big gods, the, the, the little G, but big gods in their life was power, money, and sex. And here today, power, money, sex, whatever is a carved idol or a cultured idol, the Romans' way to righteousness looked like this, the same way that culture today looks like it. It's social righteousness, where you have to carry yourself appropriately in front of different people in order to earn your presentability and to pass inspection, okay? This is, this is the challenge of Facebook righteousness where I've gotta make sure that I present myself on social media in a way that is, that is filtered, in a way that's got the right mosaic, in a way that, that kind of pushes away all the, or, or, or I, just, I just present myself in this way. That's social righteousness, moral righteousness. This is the comparison trap. In the Roman way, at least I'm not as bad as they are. At least I don't deal with that sin when you got your own sequoia tree in your own eye, when at least I don't have that speck. Relational righteousness. As long as I am loved and accepted by someone, as long as I'm able to love who I want to love, and as long as I'm able to have relationship with someone else, regardless of how that looks like, whether, it's, whether it is alignment with God's word or out of alignment with God's word, like love, I mean, like we, we just got to be able to love, like love wins, like love is the, the, the biggest thing, and I was having a conversation with a friend a while back that there was this statement on a t-shirt that we saw together and it said, if your theology doesn't start with love, start over. If your understanding of God doesn't start with love, start over. And we, we had a conversation about that and it basically went like this, like that is a, that's a good statement, but that's not a God statement. That's not a God statement. That, that's actually an inaccurate statement. That's a very dangerous statement. If your theology doesn't start with love, start over. Here's the, the more accurate statement. If your theology doesn't start with God, start over. Because love can be defined by anybody, anywhere, anytime, with anything. God is love. God determines what love is. God determines where we go. So if your theology doesn't start with God of the Bible, start over. In our relational righteousness, we want to start with whatever works for us so that I can pass inspection and my peers and I can be presentable because someone, at least someone loves me. This is, this is same-sex sexuality. This is opposite-sex sexuality. This is everybody's issue. If I just get married and all of a sudden marriage becomes the way that we're trying to be righteous because if I'm married, then I pass inspection, then I'm presentable. Career righteousness. This is labor and work. This is why it's very tasty. It's, it's very, 
it, it tastes, it, it's, it, it feels good on the palate for us to talk about just how busy we are. When we talk about how busy we are and how many plates we're spinning, I'm telling you inadvertently what you don't understand is subconsciously you're trying to prove your worth to people. When, when you're talking about how big of a job and oh, it's crazy, oh, juggling everything, got to get these kids here and get these kids in, oh, these kids are going to drive me crazy. Underneath all of that is some code that is running in your software saying, I need people to, to know I'm a good mama. I need people to know I'm a hard worker because I want to be presentable and I want to pass inspection. If I can just be presentable in the eyes of my parents or in the eyes of my children or in the eyes of my peers, then I will earn my presentability and I will pass with, a, with flying colors. That's the Roman way. So my question for you is this. Any of that vaguely familiar to you? Is any of that possible in your life? I'll just speak for me. The answer is yeah. Yeah. I want to cover myself. Oh, my, 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 my net worth as a human can many times rise and fall on affirmations of people whether I feel like I've been accepted or not. Socially, career-wise, this being a calling of God, but my career. And so I, I definitely want to be at a place where we are recognizing the Roman way of righteousness. Here's another one. It's the religious way for righteousness. The, this is religion's way for us to get close. And these are going to sound a lot more familiar and these aren't bad things. They just aren't the things. When Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve recognized their unpresentability, their not ability to pass inspection, they immediately sewed fig leaves together and covered their most intimate parts because they were embarrassed and they did not pass inspection. And so here's the way that we do the same with fig leaves. We will do strict living. Where we live strict, we, 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 we Bible reading and prayer, Sunday sermons, Sunday services, Sunday dream teams. You present yourself with works. And listen, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. None of those things are bad. They're just not the answer to being made right with God. And really, if you're not careful, you know what those things will produce when you get your, the way that you get presentable wrong? They will you, you will maintain a radical insecurity, a radical insecurity on whether you can truly make it into heaven, whether you're truly where you need to be with God, and you live, you can be lived so insecure, or you may even live just so cavalier, because at least you're doing those things, and you don't even understand what really makes us right. Scripture says, no one can ever be made right with God by doing the, what the law commands. It simply shows us how sinful we are. And it's in this moment that Paul is going to pull away from this first section on sin. And he's now going to turn the corner. And he's going to bring us into the power of salvation. It is in this moment 
everything begins to change in Paul's cadence. You are powerless to do it yourself. You can't be made right with God. And the very next scripture, he begins to turn the corner. He says, but now, but now. So that's then. This is now. That was there. This is, this is right now. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, without having to be just this good person in social righteousness and career righteousness. You don't have to have a Roman way. You don't have to have the religious way. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith, believing in what we can't see, assurance of what we can't always understand in Jesus Christ. Putting our eggs in one basket with no backup plan, placing our faith, our life, our hands, our feet, our activities, our good stuff and our bad stuff, our blemishes, our busy, busy, crazy, busy days and our lazy days, our productivity, our improductivity, placing all of that in Jesus Christ. We are made right. And this is true for everyone Jew, Gentile, good person, not a good person, long time saved, just now, just now accepting Jesus. No matter who we are, it's true of everyone who believes. And he goes now to one of the most popular scriptures that would have been written in the Bible. Everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious. Another way we may have memorized it if you were in church, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's now that he's going to turn the corner and he is going to show us just what it means to live a life that is saved. To, to, to have a heart that has experienced salvation. Later in the book of Corinthians, the, the letters he wrote to the church at Corinth, he will say it like this. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to take on all of our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God that we would be made right in the eyes of God, not by our fig leaves, but by the Son of God taking our place on the cross, living the perfect, looking at the law and perfecting the law, taking all of our sin on himself, taking my place, paying my debt. Now, because of the rightness of Jesus, I get to wear that rightness in my life. That's the third part. It's the right way. It's the right way to righteousness. A few thoughts to write down. And then we're going to pray this over our lives today, everybody. At all of our locations, we're going to, I want you to get ready. I believe God is going to free some people today. When we pray in just a few moments, you have been trying to dress yourself for success in the wrong righteousness. And it's time. It's time to take on the right righteousness. When I say dress, when you go to Ephesians chapter six and you have the armor of God, the apostle Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Like it, it, it covers 
the heart. The, the, the center, the intersection of your thoughts, emotions, and desires, and you put on the breastplate of rightness with God. A few thoughts, write them down. When it comes to the right way, I don't develop righteousness and then give it to Jesus as a gift. Like, here you go, Jesus. Look how good I was. Look at what I did. I painted you the picture, Jesus. Aren't you proud of me? I preached that sermon, Jesus. Don't, will, I, will I still make it into heaven? I, I showed up to church, Jesus. I stopped, I, you know, I stopped cursing as much, Jesus. Will you, can I, I develop my righteousness and I give it to Jesus and I hope that it's okay and I hope that I'm presentable and I hope that when he looks at all my righteousness that I give to him, that it passes inspection. In, in, instead of that, Jesus develops righteousness and he gives it to me. He developed it through the sinless life, through the ultimate sacrifice, and he gives it to you. And here's what's beautiful about righteousness. Whether you were Hitler, whether you were a 13-year-old goody two-shoes, his righteousness is one size fits all. His sacrifice on the cross is enough for you. Listen to me, Duncan and Dieball, where I know that society, society will look down on those that are in your shoes. His righteousness is, is it fits anybody in this room. It fits anybody in your room. Don't think you can earn it by making your case. Don't think you can earn it by, you know, um, uh, ju just serving the time and doing, you know, because you did the crime. You don't earn your way close to God just by showing up to a service tonight. But it's one size fits all that he develops. It's a gift to you, but you got to take it. You got to receive it. You got to place it over yourself. Get rid of the fig leaves. Cover yourself with your completeness, your presentability, and your passing inspection by who he is, not by what you are or what you aren't. And when you do that, here's what you got to do. You got to repeat it in order to remember it. You got to repeat it in order to remember it. What do you got to repeat and remember? It's this old song, but it ties it up so beautifully. My hope is built on nothing less. Your hope can't be built on anything else. It's built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. His sacrifice, his purity, his passing inspection his perfection. My hope is built on nothing less. You got to repeat it to remember it every single day. Otherwise, you'll want to continue to suppress it. You got to repeat it to remember it. Otherwise, you'll suppress it. It's all about him and it'll all become about you again. And you'll try to suppress it, replace it, reject it. Just like the apostle Paul has shown us over the last several chapters. And so, Repeat it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. So when you are in this place where I'm relying on my record of good works, my record of church attendance, my record of being a good dad, my, my record of, of professional accolades and professional promotions, mm -mm. <laughs> in order to push that pride down and humble yourself, my hope is built, my career is built, my relationships are built, my my. my my completeness is built. My presentability is built. My passing inspection is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's an old hymn that says it like this. Lay your deadly doing down. Just trying to do it to earn it. Lay your deadly doing down. Where do you lay it down? Lay it down at Jesus' feet. 
hymn goes on to say, stand in him and on him alone gloriously complete. That's where you stand today, friend. That's where you stand today. Senior saint, baby Christian, someone in between that you haven't accepted the gift because you have to accept it. You don't just automatically come to a church service and get it. You have to choose to believe. You have to confess with your mouth that he is Lord. That means that I'm taking on his rightness because I can't be right enough. You got to remember it and you got to repeat it or you'll continue to suppress it. So when, when, when you're relying on your record and it's good, uh-uh, you're not good enough. But you know what else? Write it down. When you're guilty of sin and your heart says to you, you're not worthy. How could you do that? You, you, you have made God so sad. And he, how would he ever want someone like you? You feel like I can't run to him, but I should run away from him. Another hymn says it like this. I love this. Well, may the accuser roar. The enemy will roar. The enemy will question. The enemy will come after you to steal, kill, and destroy you. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. Because he is going to be in your brain. He's going to be in your heart. He's going he's to give you these thoughts. He's going to challenge you on these things. And you're going to challenge you on these things. And You may roar. You may be your own worst enemy. In your own insecurities, oh man, all the sins that I have done, you got to remember it and you got to repeat it so you won't suppress it that I know them all and thousands more. <laughs> yes, I know my sin. I know all I've done and what I haven't done and what I wish I would never have done and what nobody knows about, and what everybody knows about. <sighs> he may roar about all those things and I know them all and thousands more, but my Jesus remembers. Though your sin be like crimson, he will wash it white as snow. Let's pray. Would you close your eyes right where you are at all of our locations? You have to put on this breastplate of righteousness. You don't wake up and poof. You know, it doesn't fit over all your other righteousness. So today, symbolically, emotionally, spiritually, maybe you need to unbuckle all of the Roman way, the religious way, and stand naked before God ashamed, insecure. God, I've tried to cover myself. I've tried to be presentable. I've tried to pass inspection. And now let Jesus step to you and cover you with his blanket of righteousness. May he clothe you in this moment. May you receive his good gift of righteousness. Will you just receive it today? If you've never invited him to be your Lord and Savior, that's what you do when you invite God, cover me in your son's sacrifice and righteousness. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, and it's what you've done. It's not what I could do. I want to be covered in you today. Thank you, Lord, for receiving me today. Because, God, you see Jesus 
You see me and then you see me covered in Jesus. I, I get a pass inspection. I am, I am presentable, not because of me, but because of you. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that we would find the grace and the mercy for those that are trying to walk out their own righteousness. That we would be people that would show others the right way to be made right. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.